We're in Genesis chapter 20 and 21 this evening. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this topic of failure tonight in the life of Abraham, we wish that failure wasn't our story, but so many times it is. And Lord, we pray that we could see our failure in light of the cross, that we could learn more about you in failure, and that we could really see you change and transform our lives. So God, we do acknowledge that you're in this place, just as we sang together. Your promise is where two or three are gathered, you're in our midst. So would you speak to us? We give you our ear, we give you our attention. And we give you our hearts. We pray that you would remove our hearts from distraction. So God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. How do you handle failure? A lot of times failure sends us into a tailspin, can cause us to live in guilt and shame and condemnation, and we act like we've never failed before. Isn't that true? Like, why should we be so surprised that we failed, you know? I think it's oftentimes pride in my life and our lives that causes us to handle failure so miserably. Theodore Roosevelt had this quote. He says, show me a man that makes no mistakes and I'll show you someone who has done nothing, right? Because if you try to do things, you're gonna fail. You're gonna fall short. Edison spent $100,000 on 6,000 pieces of fabric, different specimens of fabric, a lot of money in that time. And only three pieces of fabric worked for his experiment, That's a lot of money, that's a lot of failure, a lot of pieces of fabric to go through to find three that were successful. Henry Ford, who made the first car, he says this, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Hopefully that's true, right? Is when we fail, we go, okay, in Christ I can begin again and now hopefully I can do it from a place of wisdom. But we would all agree failure is very difficult uh, in our lives to be able to navigate. And as we look at the life of Abraham this evening, we're going to see him walking through failure. He's a man of great faith, but he's also a man of great failure. And hopefully we'll learn how to navigate failure in our lives as well. Verse 1, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Abraham decides to head south. Now, unlike chapter 12, he does stay in Egypt or stay in the promised land this time and doesn't go all the way down uh, to Egypt. He's still dwelling in the region that God said that he would grant him as promised land. But he is going into Philistine territory. This is an ancient Philistine city that he is headed towards. And he comes back to this pattern of sin in his life as he heads south. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and and took Sarah. He's done this once before when he went to Egypt. He says, you're my sister, not my wife. And they had agreed to this whenever they would come into a new city. Now, there's a few things to ponder at this point in Abraham's life when he does this. And the first is, he has been here before, 
He has made this sin, this mistake before, and it didn't turn out very well for him in it. Proverbs 26 says, like a dog that returns to his vomit, so is a fool who returns to his folly. That's a brutal picture, isn't it? I mean, a dog eating up its vomit, gross, right? But yet when we go back to the same mistake, that's the visual imagery that God gives uh, to us. And that's the hard part with failure, is it would be nice if we only visited it once and learned our lesson. But oftentimes, like Abraham, we visit a second time, a third time, many times, over and over again. The other thing to ponder is that God had just told Abraham and Sarah that within a year, they were going to have the promised child. From Abraham to Sarah, God was going to bless them. They're putting all of that in jeopardy by this lie and for her to go under the harem of this pagan king. So obviously Abraham's not thinking about the promise of God when he enters into this lie pack with his wife. And the other point to ponder is Sarah is really old at this point, right? Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is an old woman. I mean, they lived longer, but still, she, she's not a spring chicken at this point. And Abraham still feels that he needs to protect himself if they go into this new city and people find out that they're married, that they would kill him in order to be able to marry Sarah. But does failure make sense? Does sin make sense? You know, there's an old saying that sin makes you stupid. And it's absolutely true, isn't it? It gets the best of all of us when we are overcome by fear and by selfishness. In verse 3, but God. Underline that. Meditate upon that. God is going to intervene on behalf of Abraham and Sarah. And thankfully, we serve a God who intervenes in our sin and intervenes in our failure. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. This is a disturbing dream. God comes to you in a dream and says, Hey, by the way, you're a dead man because you're fooling around with someone else's wife. And Abimelech's probably going, what? What? I had, I had no idea. Now, men, if you want to have this dream, fool around with someone else's wife, right? If you want to have God come to you and say, hey, you're a dead man, then just give this a try. And this shows uh, God's heart for Abraham and God's heart for Sarah to protect them in spite of Abraham's decision to lead his family in this lie. In verse 4, but Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, and she even, and she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. So Abimelech says, God, I have done this in the integrity of my heart. This sounds a lot like Abraham's prayer over Sodom. God, are you going to judge the righteous with the wicked? And here, Abimelech is praying the same thing. But now the the shoe is upon someone else's foot. And in this, we're going to see God's grace to Abimelech to spare him from sin in the integrity of his heart, grace to 
Abraham to protect him from his own failure, and then grace to Sarah because Sarah is willing to come underneath her husband's leadership even when Abraham's in the wrong, trusting that the Lord is going to be her protector. And God was faithful to do it. Abimelech had not even come near Sarah even though that Sarah had become part of his harem. Verse 6, And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So God saw the integrity of Abimelech's heart. Now, if you can say this in some area of your life that, man, I honestly didn't know, right? I made this mistake in the integrity of of my heart, then God's going to come to your defense and be your protector. And God comes to the defense of Abimelech here. In verse 7, now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. What had taken place is part of God's protection for Sarah is Abimelech and his harem, none of his wives were getting pregnant. And so Abraham's going to pray for Abimelech, and then all of a sudden, the wombs of his wives are opened, and they're able to have uh, children once again. Now, Abimelech goes and rebukes Abraham. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all of his servants, and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were very much afraid. So now the attention of the whole household has been captured. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? So Abimelech confronts the sin. Abraham, this man of faith, is being corrected and rebuked by an unbeliever. And this is the second time that this has happened in Abraham's life. And this is humbling, isn't it? We want to have testimony to an unbeliever, but sometimes in our failure, in our sin, they are the ones that God uses to confront us on our sin. So, so far, what have we seen in Abraham's life in this chapter for failure? Well, the first is there's a failure in marriage because he's leading his wife down a path of sin in this pact of telling a lie. And then the second failure is of testimony. He's lost his testimony with unbelievers, right? And we're going to see God's faithfulness to Abraham in spite of his, his failure. And so in verse 11, And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. Interesting that Abraham doesn't think that anyone in this Philistine city has a fear for God, but at this point, at this particular moment, Abimelech is acting out of more respect for God than Abraham. And sometimes I think we just assume all of the wrong things when it comes to God's working in a particular community. We may come into a particular community and think, there's no fear of God here. And there may be a lot of unbelievers But we may be surprised that these unbelievers have a respect for God 
that at that moment may be even more heightened than our own fear of God, right? So he's thinking nobody here is going to respect God, but Abimelech is fearing the Lord. Some would have had this dream and gone, well, it's just the pizza that I ate. Or God said that he was going to kill me, but I don't believe there's a God. But Abimelech's really hearing what God is speaking to him and responding to it. Then highlight this, and I think there's a good application for our hearts tonight, is the heart of this for Abraham is that he's afraid. He's afraid that they'll kill him on account of his wife, that his wife's so beautiful that they'll kill him in order to marry his wife. Church, brother and sister in Christ, we're going to make terrible decisions if we're operating out of fear. If we're in a place where we're afraid of this, afraid of that, and that's what has our attention and our affection and our hearts and our minds are fixed on this fear, that's going to lead us to a a sinful decision. That's going to lead us to failure. And God tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. So it's good to step back from our decisions sometimes and go, am I making this decision out of fear? And is this a decision that God would want me to make? Is this a decision that lines up with scripture and who God is and who I know him to be? We want to make decisions out of faith, not decisions out of fear. So don't let that creep into our hearts and our minds. In verse 12, but indeed she is truly my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Abraham has a way of twisting this pretty good. Yes, it's true that they are half brother and sister, but they are full husband and wife. Amen? Right? And their deepest relationship is, is husband and wife. This is the right information with the wrong implication. Did you eat the cookie? Not really. (laughs) Well, what does that mean, right? So we can give just a portion of the information, but we're giving the wrong implication, and that's what Abraham was doing. Verse 13, And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is your kindness, that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now, this is really interesting. When they got called out by God to wander, to, to walk by faith until God showed them where they were supposed to be, Abraham realizes that it's not as safe as being in the Ur of Chaldees. So he looks at Sarah and says, as we're on this journey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to say that you are my sister, and what they had decided was a pattern of sin. And that's why it's so easy for them to slip into this for the second time, for Abraham to lead his family in this a second time. And I want us to examine this for a moment in our hearts and our lives, because I bet you there's areas of our lives where we've already decided We've already predetermined a pattern of sin. When I'm faced with this situation, maybe the fear is so strong, I've already decided that I'm going to make this sinful choice. And then sometimes, even in marriage, we make packs or patterns of sin as husbands and wives. We say, when we come up to this, we're going to do this. And sometimes, just like Abraham and Sarah, it's talked about, it's predetermined, it's agreed upon. Sometimes you don't ever verbalize it, but it becomes 
habit, if you would, because this is how we handle this particular situation. Yet in Romans 6, it's very clear that God tells us that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness because of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And that whatever we present ourselves to is ultimately going to form our character, who we are, our lifestyle. So instead of having a pattern of sin, we should have a pattern of righteousness. In our own walks with the Lord individually, if you're single, if you're married as husbands and wives saying, we have determined that we're going to follow the Lord. We've determined that we're going to put the Lord first. You know, how maybe could a pattern of foolishness be developed inside of a marriage? Maybe it could be in the area of finances to say, you know what, we're okay with debt and we're not even going to really worry about debt. And God has provided for us through Almighty Visa, right? We're not even going to concern ourselves with what the interest rate may be or stop and pray when it comes to a particular need that happens in our lives. And without even realizing it, there's this pattern that's setting us up for failure in our finances. That's just an example. How could you have a pattern of righteousness in finances? Well, let's honor God with our first fruits. Let's tithe and take that step of faith and rework our budget because that's what God has called us to do, to be cheerful givers and to give to the work of the Lord. And at first, that tithe check is going to be so hard. Doing it online or dropping it in the box and there's no way this is going to work, right? But eventually, over time, there's going to be a pattern of righteousness set in your life where you couldn't imagine not giving to the work of the Lord. That's what you do first. When you're doing your monthly finances, you're like, the first thing is we're going to give to the, the work of the Lord. And then maybe when this crossroads of debt comes, because there's this pattern of righteousness, Lord, it all belongs to you. We really don't want to go into to debt. We know the bondage that that brings in our lives. So God, would you give us wisdom? And would you, would you provide? You know, there, there may even be a particular family member that when you interact with them, you've already decided this is how we're going to act. This is what we've always done, right? And maybe it's a birth out of bitterness, and it isn't godly, and it doesn't, doesn't honor the Lord. And the Lord's saying, okay, now build in a new pattern. And this, this new pattern is one of dealing with them in a godly fashion. So, guys, hear this in our marriages. For those that are you are married, or you hope to be married, or plan to be married in the future, is don't get complacent in your marriage to where you become partners in sin together, right? Loving each other in our marriages is to hold each other accountable, and to be able to speak truth and love, and say, hey, wait a second here, right? If your spouse can't speak into your life, then who can? right? If somehow you've convinced yourself to not allow yourself for your spouse to speak truth to you, then you're in a world of hurt. Because part of this covenant that we've entered into together, saying we want to serve the Lord. We want to honor the Lord. And we really do influence each other as husband and wife, don't we? Haven't you noticed that? Amber and I have been married for 17 years. And over those 17 years, I find myself liking some of the things that she likes 
you know, and now she likes tacos and hamburgers a whole lot more now than when we were first married, right? Because I've, I've moved her into this love of meat, right? And you just start to wear off on each other a little bit. And thankfully, Amber loves the Lord, right? And ultimately, she's that influence uh, in my life. But we want to be careful. Are we establishing a pattern of sin? Are we establishing a pattern of righteousness? That's true if you're married. It's true uh, if you're single. Think of a rut in a road, right? If you're on a dirt road and there's a rut there, and sometimes we're just in this deep rut of sin, and really the transformation that takes place is for God to take us out of that rut of sin and to put us into the rut of righteousness, to put us into that pattern of righteousness as we seek the Lord and begin to make different decisions. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. This is grace upon grace. This is abounding grace. Abraham doesn't deserve this. He gets his wife back unharmed, but he also gets sheep and oxen, male and female servants. This is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. God is being faithful in Abraham's life in spite of his failure. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. God is also giving Abraham some of this promised land. He's having permission to dwell inside of the promised land. The doors opened to the promised land. Then to Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen his facial expressions, Abimelech's facial expression, as he's handing over these thousand pieces of silver and goes, uh, this is a gift to your brother, wink, 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 right? And then the end of this is she felt rebuked, you know? In essence, Abimelech is saying to Abraham, why didn't you tell me? And then he's also saying to Sarah, why didn't you say anything as well? So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and female servants. Then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This would be a testimony to Abraham and Sarah, as Sarah is still barren, but she has been promised to have a child within a year that God indeed does control the womb. That God is indeed is the one who opens and closes uh, the, the womb. God highlights the, that he protected Sarah. He did this to Abimelech's household because of Sarah. Because Sarah was willing to trust the Lord by honoring her husband and trusting that God would protect her and deal with her husband. And ladies, I know that this is a tough teaching in scripture to say, I'm gonna continue to honor my husband and if he is in failure or in sin, to trust that the Lord is gonna deal with him. But we see from scripture, God is much better at bringing correction in your husband's life than you ever could be, right? And sometimes it's like as simple as handing this over to the Lord, saying, okay, my job is to honor him. I do think that you need to be speaking truth and love to him, 
you know, I think, I hope Sarah was speaking in truth and love to, to Abraham, but ultimately she left Abraham in God's hands and God was, was faithful to deal with, with Abraham. Verse one of chapter 21, and the Lord visited Sarah and he, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age and at the set time of which God had spoken to him. So they waited so long for this to take place. Sarah conceives and then bears a son, Isaac, to Abraham in his old age. It's a side note, but I think it's worth mentioning, and then we'll come back to these two verses. As my heart's really broken over New York passing this law of late-term abortion. And what I do want you to see in the scripture is how God values conception and how God values life. God gave conception for Isaac to be born. And Isaac's life began at that moment of conception. And God's the one who authors life, and life begins at conception. And abortion at any point in the pregnancy is, is the murder of a life. And I know that that hits hard for some because if you've had an abortion or you participated in abortion, that's heavy. And God forgives and wants to restore your heart and your life. And this isn't a message of condemnation, but it is a message of we should be the voice for life because God is life and God is, is love. And our country is headed down a very difficult slope in this issue of abortion and the issue of these, these late-term abortions. And if I'm understanding the, the laws uh, correctly, you can get an abortion now in, in New York leading up to the very end of the pregnancy as long as it is a day before uh, the due date. And now there's several other states that are looking to pass uh, similar, similar laws. Uh, and, and this should move us, you know, it, it should move us to prayer, it should move us to look at points of action, uh, it should move us to a place of, of valuing life, you know, and praying that God would turn our culture uh, back to the Lord, and these laws would be changed, and that more and more people would see the value of life. And this surprised me in New York because there's been a lot of laws to protect against late-term abortions. And some of the reading that I've done has actually shown that the view of the population of America on abortion is changing, and it's largely due to the 3D ultrasounds. Because if you see an ultrasound, even of a young child in the womb, there's no doubt that it's a life. There's no, no doubt that, that that baby is fully alive inside of the womb. And so I do think that there's hope for there to be change in our country uh, in this, this issue of, of abortion and people's hearts being turned to the Lord. And abortion is an, a part of this issue, but it also expands all the way through. How do we view life? You know, how do we view our own lives? How do we view the lives of our family? How do we view the life of the person who is making us so angry in traffic, right? Are they created in God's image? Is God the author of, of their life? How do we view the elderly? You know, here in Colorado, unfortunately, we have some of the more twisted laws in the country, 
And it's, most of them have happened in the last 10 years. And assisted suicide is legal in Colorado, and I don't think it's biblical. It's an issue of life. God's the giver of life. He's the one who takes life. And even when we suffer, we leave it in God's hands of knowing when our last day should be. And if we're struggling to see the value of suffering, we have to look at the cross. And Jesus chose the cross, and it was suffering. And so, yes, there's going to be difficulty in our lives, and yes, there's going to be terminal illness in our lives, but what would God desire to do in those last days of suffering? How does that suffering speak to those who do have good health? What kind of conversations have happened in that last six months of someone's life while they're suffering? How many people have come to know Christ as their Savior as they've suffered at the end of their life, and it's actually God's kindness upon their life to show them their need for a Savior, and they're about ready to step into eternity. So for Isaac, his parents saw his life as being a blessing from the Lord. Abraham and Sarah saw this baby as being a blessing from the Lord, and that's how we should see all babies as they are in the womb and throughout their lives, and how we should view the elderly as well. Now to delve into these two verses a little bit more, I love the emphasis where it says, the Lord did as he had spoken. God was faithful to his word, and God's always going to be faithful to his word. Amen? He's going to fulfill his promises. Verse 3, and Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah had born to him, Isaac. And Isaac means he laughs. What a great name for Isaac. He brings me joy. He brings me laughter. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham is obedient to God's word. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. Remember, Sarah laughed in unbelief, but now she's laughing with joy, just pure joy of being a mom. And she's saying, others are going to celebrate with me as well. In Psalms 33.10, it says that the Lord turns our mourning into dancing. God has the ability to make beauty out of ashes, and Sarah is filled with joy. Sarah's life had been marked with the failure of unbelief, but yet God was gracious to her in her unbelief and has blessed her with a child and with laughter. Verse seven, she also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would, have, would nurse children? For I've borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned, and Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. So here's Ishmael, and he begins to mock the promised child. We roughly know Ishmael's age, because Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86 years old. Now he's 100 years old, plus whatever time it took for Isaac to be weaned, which was probably around age two or three at this time. So he's 16, 17 years old at this point. And he sees the promised child getting all of this attention and he's envious and begins to scoff. 
In verse 10, therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Sarah realizes that this is a toxic environment, and Abraham is grieved. God speaks. We see another point of God's intervention. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So God says, yeah, you need to go ahead and have Ishmael and Hagar go. And this must have been so difficult for Abraham. God says, yes, it's Isaac who is the promised child that the promise is going to be fulfilled through. Write down Galatians 4, 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. Because Paul's going to use this as an illustration of the law and the spirit. That Ishmael and Hagar, they represent the law, a work of the flesh. And that's always at war with the work of the spirit, which is Isaac. In the book of Galatians, you find a group of believers that are wanting to go back under the law and really rely upon their own works instead of relying upon the spirit of God. And then there's this really deep illustration that Paul uses from the Old Testament with Hagar, because Hagar was really a work of Abraham's flesh. This is something that I can do upon my own without having to rely upon God and the Spirit of God. Isaac was a work of the Spirit. Isaac was something that Abraham could not do upon his own, but was God graciously fulfilling his promise. And in our life, we're going to have this tension between our flesh and the Spirit wanting to do things according to rules and regulations. And if I do my part, then God is going to bless. But then this other part of us that is moved by the Spirit of God that relies upon the promises of God, we're saying, I know that I can do nothing apart from the Lord. And so instead of relying upon my works, I'm relying upon the Spirit of God. And if you know the book of Galatians, then chapter 5 gives us a description of the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. So very literally for us, we can find ourselves saying, is this in my life an Ishmael or is it an Isaac? Is this a work of the flesh or is this a work of the spirit? Does that make sense? Well, if it doesn't, come talk to me afterwards, okay? Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Amazing obedience from Abe, from Abraham, to go ahead and obey God's word to send out Ishmael and Hagar. And the water in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Now remember, he's a teenager at this point. Then she went out and sat down across from him At a distance of about a bow shot, shooting an arrow. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. 
So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. We see Abraham's failure in family. So there's failure in his marriage, there's failure in his testimony, Sarah has failure in unbelief, and now there's failure in his family. He's got to send away a portion of his family. Sends away a wife, sends away a son with only a canteen of water out into the wilderness. But God was faithful and God rescued Ishmael and made Ishmael into a great nation, which is the the Arab nations. The testimony of Hagar and Ishmael is that God hears our cries. Here's our cries when we're the outcast. Here's our cries when we're in the wilderness. When we're at complete desperation. And it's awesome to know that God is faithful even in our failures inside of the family unit. Because if there's one place we're going to make mistakes, it's going to be inside of the family unit. Amen? And those are the hardest ones to admit, right? I'm sure Abraham's like, can we get out an eraser and just erase this whole thing with Agar, Hagar? right? But he failed in his family, but yet God was faithful. I love this picture of of God opening up her eyes to a well that she hadn't seen before. And there is possibilities that we haven't seen that God would open up our eyes to in the wilderness. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. If you're ever wondering if God loves the Arab nations, he absolutely does. Because there's two times in the book of Genesis where God could have wiped out Hagar and Ishmael, but he chose to save them supernaturally and bless them to form the Arab nations because he loves them and wants them to be his people. In verse 22, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech, And Pekol, the commander of the army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. So this is the same Abimelech. And even though Abraham has failed, Abimelech sees God's hand upon Abraham's life. And that's awesome. That's beautiful. Are we going to fail before unbelievers? Unfortunately, yes. But hopefully as they watch our lives, they can see that God's hand is on our life. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I've done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants have seized. So this shows wisdom and diplomacy on Abraham's part. There's contention over a well that Abraham has dug But Abraham doesn't bring that up right away. He waits for the right opportunity. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor have I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. They make an agreement over this well. And Abraham sent seven ewe lambs of the flocks by themselves, 
Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs, which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be a witness that I have dug this well. This is the liability contract right here. Abraham says, this agreement needs to be in writing, needs to be in blood, if you would, and these young lambs are going to be the proof to this oath that this well is my well, and I have dug this well. Do you guys know how important water is? It's so important, isn't it? I mean, we're getting our, our water from Pueblo, even after I made fun of Pueblo Reservoir. I mean, Colorado Springs wouldn't be able to build all these houses if water's coming up from, from Pueblo. I mean, water is such a big deal, even today, and you're thinking of this dry, arid climate in the wilderness, and you could see why there would be tension over this well So Abraham wants a contract, and that's what the lambs are for. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abraham rose with Pakol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistine so many days. This is really, really important. And you're saying, why in the world is this really, really important? Because in this chapter, God gives to Abraham and Sarah the promised son, Isaac, that they waited so long for in God's timing. Isaac would lead to the children of Israel and fulfill the promises that God had given to Abraham. But also right here, God is opening up the land to Abraham as well. And through Abimelech, he's able to dwell in the promised land. Abraham realizes it, and he plants a tree. Now, if you're planting a tree, do you do that in a house that you're renting? Probably not, right? Because you're like, I'm going to be out of here in a few years. But if you have the opportunity to buy a house or get a mortgage and buy that house for 30 years, right? You go, this is a place of permanency. I'm going to plant a tree, And it's significant that Abraham plants a tree because he's saying, we're going to dwell in this land. I'm believing that God is going to give this land to us because he is the everlasting God. So as we think of failure in marriage, failure in testimony, failure in faith, failure in family, God was gracious and he was faithful to his promise in the life of Abraham. We will all have many opportunities to face sin and to face failure in our lives. And when we fail, it's easy to have an attitude that says, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm done trying. I'm giving up. And we get distracted and depressed and discouraged, and we lose sight of the Lord. Or we can listen to what John says. John the disciple, he says, these things I write to you that you may not sin. That's God's desire. He doesn't want us to sin. But it goes on and says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So God doesn't want us to sin, but if we do sin, we need to come to the cross. And we need to see Jesus, our advocate. He's the righteous one. And he's going to the Father saying, I died for that. And for us to receive forgiveness from Christ and allow Christ to pick us up and to get up and keep going and to keep trying. Abraham failed, but he didn't stay there. He kept going. 
and he walked through failure. And maybe tonight you find yourself in a place of discouragement over failure. And you've given up, in a sense, on your relationship with the Lord. Allow the Lord to forgive you. As we come and celebrate communion, confess our sin to the Lord. And allow him to cleanse us and to forgive us. And it's at the cross of Jesus Christ that we experience forgiveness. I know this might sound harsh, but when we don't receive forgiveness, we're saying that the blood of Jesus is not enough. We think it's about us. Isn't that so selfish? We go, look at my sin and look at how terrible it is and God could never forgive me. Well, he's the one that came up with the contract that forgiveness is through Christ. He's the one that says the blood of his son is enough. It's kind of frustrating if you're trying to buy somebody lunch and they're like, I don't think you have the money to buy me lunch. Do you think you can really afford to do this? You're just like, shut up, you know? Like, I want to buy you lunch. Just let me buy you lunch. And sometimes we argue with God, like, can you really be this gracious? He's probably just like, shut up. Like, I paid for it. Well, he probably doesn't say that. Like, would you receive it? Would you believe that I have the resources to be able to forgive you? But it's also at the cross that we have the power to change. And the power of sin has been broken at the cross. And as we look at who Jesus is and choose to be slaves to righteousness, there can be different patterns in our marriages. Amen? There can be different patterns of faith. There can be different patterns in our family. Say, Lord, you're changing me. You're forgiving me through your grace, but you're also changing me. So let's stand together and let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the promise that's given to us in 1 John 2. That you don't want us to sin, but if we sin, that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank you, Jesus, for being the sacrifice for our sins. We talk about forgiveness, but tonight we pray that we could receive your forgiveness afresh as we celebrate communion. And God... We thank you for your forgiveness and we also thank you for your power to change us. And would you change these patterns in our lives? Would you reveal them to us and form new patterns, patterns of righteousness? So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.